This is Paul. This is Caroline. And welcome back to our continuing coverage of the fifth season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for the third episode entitled Typos and Torsos. Sounds pretty gruesome. Well, you don't want to get them mixed up. Certainly not. So we had another cold open that was a flash forward. This time it was 1984. This was Ethan. He's in Israel. He's a farmer. What struck me about this casting on this one is how much he sounded like Joel. It was so weird, you know? And the previous one, I was looking at the profile of the actress and, like, comparing her to Rachel and thinking about, you know, does she look like her parents or whatever? This one, it was like, you are your father's kiddo, man. Like, I hear his voice. What do you think about Ethan turning out to be a farmer in Israel, getting married to Hava? It's kind of a shock, really. But maybe that's kind of the pattern of religious observance in a family, right? Where it's massive in one generation and then not in the next. and But then it goes back up for the next generation. So Midge, yes, she observes Jewish tradition, but... Right, they're not overly yeah. religious. Then all of a sudden, maybe the connection to, to Moish and, and his story about getting the, the Jews out of Germany and all that, maybe that speaks to Ethan at a certain point in his life where he's like, I need to do more for, for our people. And so he, he does. Very plausible. And since you bring that up, there is that entire section about the, the crew who got the 13 Jews out uh, later on when we're talking about May. So we'll have to yeah. make sure we, we hit on that. Did you think this was something that also made sense maybe towards the, the idea of if you grew up in, in a city, especially New York City, in this like beautiful apartment and you have like, you know, this uber famous mother we're assuming is going to happen here for the majority of his life he's going to grow up with a pretty famous mom it also goes that then the next generation like lives on like a compound and they're like growing hemp and <laughs> right doesn't that seem to happen with like rock star kids or something like that they have like a very quiet bead store somewhere I think there's a, also a yin and a yang that happens generationally that it's like, you know, maybe probably Ethan's kids will make him crazy because they want to be famous celebrities. Some like to bask and, and some just want obscurity. They've, they've had their share of pictures taken and are done with it. Yeah, I could see that happening. And Hava certainly was not <laughs> into Midge one bit. Well, to your point, Hava is someone born in America who returned to Israel and served in the Defense Force. So mm -hmm. that is not a trivial thing. So yeah, she's in it. She is for the cause. So we have that all going on. I thought that, you know, we certainly got Esther's POV in terms of her mother's lack of awareness, calling her at all times of the night. And now we have her showing up here in the helicopter on a farm, blowing the crops all over the place. Everyone's like ducking and, and like crying out like, ah! <laughs> you know, like all of that. Of course, you know, this is how Midge would play this out. I've seen some flack this season about people feeling like she's being ultra toxic as a mom and like ultra shitty as like trying to, um, you know, just being so unaware, showing up and doing stuff like this that like people are like really liking her less and less and less. Does this affect how you feel about her or is it like this is the same personality she's shown the whole time? 
The show's never been about the kids. Midge's life, whether or not you want to hear it or not, is not about her kids. I think there may be some analysis at the end of this series that may wish that Midge, quote unquote, had it all. You know, that American dream of the woman with the with the career and the perfect family or whatever the that is. I think people will want to read into what Amy has to say about she had to pick one and she picked her career. Well, we know for Amy herself that that was the choice, that she chose to go career, not have kids, you know, not even do that because, you know, in interviews I've heard from her that it's like not possible. You can't have it all. You can do one or the other or you can do one at one time and then you can have like a second act and try to do a career and stuff. It's, it is difficult to do it at this level, right? You can't be the ultra anything, mom nor celebrity, if you're trying to do it everything, right? It's difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for those uh, where have they been, you know, clickbait yeah. articles. And surprisingly often, or maybe unsurprisingly often, the theme with, with hot actresses, now I'm not saying creatives because creatives. Um, people aren't keeping track of creatives to the, to the same extent that they keep track of others. But with actresses that had it all going on, mm-hmm. famous names, all of a sudden they're not working. Right. It's because they had kids and they decided to do that. The person who comes to mind right away is Julia Roberts for me. Is like She was like in everything when me and you were like in high school and college and even right after that. And then... Not that long after that, like, so she had kids like later she and she totally, you know, was dealing with that. Here's the deal that I do want to point out. I do not believe it is any one person's job to raise the kids. Not one person. It is not Midge's job to raise the children. She is their mother. Yes. But I think that she has a huge support system. She has both sets of grandparents. She's got Zelda. She's got Joel. You know, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with spreading around the raising of children. Well, that's why I I put the American dream in quotes uh, for I even spelled it out for listeners because I'm not I'm not in the written word in this in this format. The media perception, I guess, that that gets put into short media like like TV shows, movies needs to quote. I'm gonna get I'm gonna quote unquote needs to portray women as powerful, all everything type beings. That includes healthy career and family life all at the same time. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think that the misnomer is that somehow she has to be the Statue of Liberty standing in the middle of her children, raising her children all alone. And it's like, what the heck? She's got six other adults, right, that I just like named off that are all active in the children's lives, that are all making sure that they're fed and they got their homework done and they get to school and they get home. Like Abe even takes a turn this time. I, that's why I kind of feel like, right. <laughs> I That's why I kind of feel like it's like, you know, I don't see this as some sort of disaster. Like she, she had to give up something. What did she give up? She gave up being the sole person putting her kids to bed at night. Why was that ever the expectation? I'm, I'm you know? just using my... I'm not talking to you. I'm really talking to the people listening. Okay? Well, okay. Those people listening. <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking at my crystal ball and I, and I don't know what the whole consensus will be about this show in a couple of weeks when it ends. I'm just wondering, will there be people that look back and, and hope to have seen Midge, quote unquote, do it all? And I'm thinking there will be. 
And I'm saying she is doing it all because, again, she doesn't need to be the sole person raising her children in order for her to be a great mom. I think being a great mom means creating the support system around your kiddo, which she made through her choices. Like she chooses to still live with her parents or for her parents to live with her as it really is. (laughs) She chooses to have Zelda. She chooses to have, you know, a relationship with Joel in a way that allows them all that to work together. So I think there's, there's so much cooperation here. I just, I don't know. I'm going to really frown at people who say she didn't have it all because they're creating this definition of parenting as like, you have to work alone. And, and that be the only person who's being the mom. You know who is doing it all? Who? Or maybe, I don't really know. Daisy Von Schurler Mayer, the director of this episode. I point her out because Dan and Amy have not shared the director's chair with very many people throughout the run of the show even. And so for them to pick someone, it, I bet they're that's a pretty special person. Let's talk a little bit about getting into 1961 again, talking about Ethan you know, jumping from him from 1984 to 1961. And we have this whole quiet little, like, I don't even know what to call it, like subplot somewhere. Yeah, it's like in a there. C plot. For yeah. This. About this whole trying to get him to sleep in his own bed. And, you know, we have this time frame in our pop culture here in America was definitely the time when Dr. Spock was coming around. So for those of you guys who don't know that Dr. Spock was a really famous pediatrician and he is definitely like, I can just tell you this off the top of my head. This is not research. This is just one of those things like everybody knows who Dr. Spock is from a certain era. For all of us, he was just like the one who would tell you everything of how to raise your child so this is a real departure from just like the children are not to be seen nor heard really now <laughs> this house is right they're really just supposed to be like in the room or, or just out from underfoot all the time they eat in the kitchen with zelda while all the rest of the wise men slash mazels live you know eat out in the dining room they're really not meant to be around at all so really fascinating to make a kid issue even a part of a subplot you know we really haven't done that at all so i do think it's this marking this time of 1961 Mm -hmm. january is when dr spock came out and i do think that this is also trying to mark some time of like this is when there was a big switch Uh, you know they were talking about the counselor at school and obviously we see esther later in therapy in 1981 so this is again a big switch in like talking to a counselor or talking to a therapist or any of that stuff. And Progressive we saw, parenting ideas. And like actually caring about feelings and talking about it and, and, you know, not just yelling at your kid to like do what you say, that's it, like with no explanation. So there's a real push and pull here, literally, literally push and pull between Abe and Midge throughout this whole episode of trying to figure out how to deal with Ethan. And ultimately, Midge... I think, you know, was the one who really figured out what she should be doing with the tape on the floor. I thought it was smart and it was working. He was moving, you know, like every two <laughs> feet, right? He was doing it. I really liked, again, when people are judging the parenting, watching Joel and Midge together do the tape measure and lay out the tape in the apartment. Like, think for a hard second when everyone's judging whether or not these kids have parents who, like, spend time and care about them they obviously do you know they're there they're committed to their kids i don't know i'm really bothered by the by all the judging of the parenting so i think fantastic use of the kids here to show a bunch of different things to show the difference in generations to show the big change in parenting and to show these relationships how they are cooperating together and trying to make it work 
What did you think of Abe busting in on the scene and trying to address all of Ethan's fears in his own way? It was humorous. It gave us that that little jolt of Abe outlook on right and wrong and the way things ought to be. Abe, for as much as he has changed and, and softened up, there's still that element of him. Remember, he needed things to go a very certain way during his vacation. Remember? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Remember, he had to go apologize to the tumbler because he yelled at him. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's an innocent in all this. He's an innocent. <laughs> He's so funny. Oh, my gosh. So we've got this park slope plane crash speech. I mean, what did you what would you think? This is how Abe thinks. You know, if I explain this, explain chaos in objective terms to this child, he will understand me because I'm just putting it out there. And he'll have a better grasp of fear and chaos in life. And he'll sleep better in his own bed now. That's how Abe might have thought of it. I have a parent who is also a pretty rational black and white thinker like that. And uh, I don't know that I absorbed any any speeches about falling bodies from the sky or anything like that. But I can appreciate at least what good place in that person's soul that because he wanted to help. He wanted to he help did. the kid. I think he thought if he could if he could be so blunt with Ethan that maybe he could get past sort of like the sometimes with fear, I think there's like this fogginess that comes with fear where it's like you can't even explain exactly why you're scared. It's really so much a feeling compared to what Abe does in everything, which is this like meticulous, practical efficient life like you were saying he had wanted his vacation to be just right on the way that he wanted it so fear as just a concept is like chaotic it's it's like the antithesis of abe is this idea of just this undefined completely useless emotion right that just makes you feel like crap i could see where he wanted to reason it out of ethan and be like if you want to be scared let me tell you something to be scared about, you know, like the whole torsos coming down. Whew, that, that was graphic business. Well, since that's too big to be scared of, you might as well be scared of nothing. Which is, in a way, a good way to think about it. Now, here's where I call bullshit on old Abe, because I love Abe, but Abe, <laughs> you cannot tell a small child that he cannot obsess over a particular issue and let it eat him up and let him affect everything he's doing in his little life. But then Abe makes a tiny spelling mistake and <laughs> turns it into his entire life. Typos and torsos, man. So think about that for a second. He's trying to convince Ethan like, hey, man, chill out. Let it go. You know, you can't be worked up about every little thing like this is not going to work out. And then it's like, Abe, well, pot, kettle. Except that his fear is to be made a fool of, to be apologized for. Right. That's a different kind of fear than just bodies flying from the well, sky. Ethan's fear is not bodies flying all over the sky. The, the point is we don't know what Ethan's fear is. Mm. They never go into some big in-depth definition of what his fear is and why he doesn't want to sleep in his bed. If fear is undefined, right? It's just, it's a freaky feeling. You're spooked about something. You're just uneasy. That's what I'm getting from him. I might be speaking from my own nighttime experiences. Well, I might not like to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> What's under the bed, Caroline? Bad shit, man. You don't want to put your feet down there. Scalpels? 
<gasps> Paul, Maleficent what? Daily, you're awful. You're <laughs> awful to say that to me. Okay, listen, you guys. It isn't fair. Don't talk about scalpels with Caroline and don't talk about torsos with a small child. Not cool. This entire spelling mistake, I would be embarrassed too. Don't get me wrong. I would be embarrassed too. For someone to have to print something to apologize for me, I would be embarrassed too. Now, you do fancy yourself an author at times. You do care about having writing reflecting you. I produce work. What do you think about this whole like how obsessive would you be if they had to like put out an apology for you? I understand that everyone is telling him move on and it is right to move on. However, I also very much can sympathize with having a mistake made public and then called out. I haven't had like a published like newspaper article, you know, but I do work for a big company and I have had things go out that need to be quickly retracted and redid and then send back out. Now I work in the digital format, so it's a lot easier when I make a mistake to fix it quickly before anybody notices. But that doesn't mean nobody notices. That doesn't mean that I don't feel a little smudge on my reputation whenever that does happen. So I completely sympathize with him. The rest of it, I think, is just expanded for comedic effect. I mean, Abe is a very obsessive guy, generally speaking, and he is somebody who his reputation is everything for him. And I'm sure making this gigantic move over the village voice from being this like highly regarded professor, huge, huge change of pace. And the last thing you'd want to do is embarrass yourself in this new field that you just got into. He's not like been in this for 40 years. He just became a newspaper columnist. I think probably most professional people except the most arrogant among us, there's that imposter syndrome element, you know, where he is new to this. His publisher is telling him, you're fine. Let's move on. We put out a paper every day. You need to stop talking about this. Just like any other person suffering from that particular syndrome, you can have the people supporting you around you saying, everything's fine. You're great. Your work is great. Don't worry about that, that small error. But it still matters to you, you know, that, Abs- you, that yeah. you made that. Absolutely. And you know what? It's fair. It's within Abe's personality to be obsessive about this and be worried about this. So it totally, it worked for me to have this, again, quiet plot. It was interesting how they wove it in with Ethan's. So they kind of made that whole like Abe and Ethan and everything that was going on with him kind of squished together in their own little way. Yeah. Let's switch over to Abe's counterpart. Miss Rose, and discuss all that is going on in Rose's world. She is going to weave in with Susie. Rose inadvertently becomes Don Corleone in this episode. (laughs) Do tell. The whole series of, of misadventures that lead to Kelly Bishop's character winding up in jail Which is amazing. Yeah, it is. It is to see her because she's a pretty... We've seen her in person once. And she was a very elegant kind of lady in person. Here's the thing you have to remember that really makes me laugh. Remember she got hauled in on Gilmore Girls and Christopher and Lorelai had to end their date early and go pick her up at a, in jail? I don't remember that scene. Okay, so here's the funny part about that. So then when she says, I have priors, <laughs> that's hilarious. Because to me, that's a total callback to Gilmore Girls and the fact that she had to get bailed out on there. So That's hilarious. Hilarious. 
This entire thing of going to Susie asking for a gun, then Susie's henchmen want to get involved, right? We got them back. Again, going back down that entire series cast list. We've got Kelly Bishop back in this episode. We have the actress who plays Tess, who is, if you guys remember, that's um, Susie's sister. Emily um, Burgle. Yep. And then we have John Skirty as Nikki and Eric Palladino as Frank. What do you think about this? I mean, obviously the henchmen get involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Molly is dead. Paul Molly is dead. One of the matchmakers is dead. No, it was from a heart attack from the phone call. It's not like they went over and punched her in the face and killed her. I have to say, the I laughed out loud with that whole, uh, a pistol whip is equally effective and you get less time. Well. <laughs> Did you hear the moment in my mind when I filed that away? <laughs> I was like, good to know. Good to know. The sequence of events of Susie, you know, going crossways with these guys at first Right. And then getting in their good books and then them helping her find this office as long as they can kind of operate out of there every so often. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that that later Susie becomes successful. We know that behind the scenes in Hollywood, when people mess up, they need other people to come in and try to make it go away as fast as possible. Ah, you think that 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 these two guys are like her cleanup crew? They be, I think they might become fixers in, I in like it. future times. I like it. Because Susie adapted very quickly during that conversation with Kelly Bishop's character. True. She didn't get to the point where she's like, this is madness. This <laughs> needs to stop. She was like, okay, yeah. Well, you shouldn't have done that. You know, it, it was more like she'd figure out later how to make it all right. But as long as she had this woman over a barrel, she was just going to keep her there. Well, I think that she had her own personal thing with the whipped cream, Paul. That's true. The nutmeg. She, she felt, could never get it right. She felt like a personal slight about this whole tea room situation. So her allowing Rose to like go over and use the um, office across the way from her. All of that stuff was hilarious. I mean, good on them for finding ways to, like, again, mix and match characters. Like, we had Abe and Ethan. We have Rose and Susie and the henchmen guys, right? Right. Bringing Susie to talk with the Kelly Bishop character. I mean, even that is like, what? Like, it, it's... Yeah, this doesn't mix ever, but... But very well done. Very well done to get them all together. And, and it was hilarious and excellent. You know what? Just before we get off Susie, we have that one more little bit with Tess, her sister... Where Tess is now wanting to become a singer, so she's wanting to become a client of Susie's, and that her husband died. Do you remember in the previous season, she was like wanting her husband to die, remember? Yeah, yeah. So it's So he's just dead now. It's just over. All that whole thing is well, just and, over. But she didn't share that. No. <laughs> until well after the fact, a week later. Oh, my God. And didn't he call her for that? She was calling to become a singer. She wasn't calling to say the husband died. And BT dubs, I need a job, so make me a singer. No, no, no. She called about the singing first. Huh? So funny. Hilarious. So funny. And, of course, you guys have to all recognize her as Francie from Gilmore Girls, if you guys do not recognize Tess. Let's head over to Joel for a moment because, boy, does he have some serious parent problems in this episode. My lord. I feel like Pod Clubhouse headquarters could turn into something like this <laughs> if my parents came over. <laughs> Out of all of the interactions with characters on this show, the only ones that give me that sort of cringe reflex about this is too accurate are the Maisel parents. 
I mean, I don't think my parents necessarily act like this or anyone's parents that I'm thinking of. It's just more like having them hover like that and come in and then not only screw up Joel's business, but bring family business, how they don't think Midge is funny. Right. Into public life. Yeah, no, we would never embarrass each other like that, like family-wise. Like, we would never. We would recognize the situation. I mean, once Midge was on the stage, we're not going to be yelling out stuff like she's not funny. Like, I mean, if you're going to chide each other, that's behind closed doors. That's not out in the club. But the thing is that I think because they are small business owners, there is some sense of, like, your business is some, like, just like an extension of your home or something like that. So, Whatever he would say at the factory while everyone's, you know, making dresses and stuff like that, he just is acting like you could just walk around there in your boxer shorts, you know, because whatever, it's Joel's well, the, club, the you Maisel's know. The boundaries are non-existent. There is no. <laughs> Shirley, okay, Shirley is absolutely taking my line of the, the episode for this one because when Shirley v. Mrs. Mouskowitz conversation happens and Mrs. Mouskowitz said, Mr. Maisel, I hope your mother can take a punch. And Shirley goes, oh, I can. Mr. Maisel, I certainly hope your mother can take a punch. Oh, she can. I was eating that up. I was like, you are so funny. I freaking love these two women. Like, they're amazing. Super funny. The entire thing was rough. Now, I did not expect, again, mixing and matching people you don't expect to have conversations in this episode. Surely blocking Midge in the bathroom about May. Mm. I wasn't expecting that conversation. What did you think about how that all sort of fell into place? Well, again, no boundaries. So she doesn't have any problem asking Midge to rat out anything that she can about Joel. I had some sympathy, I think, for for Midge because she's been around long enough to know there's no good of getting in the middle of this. Right. It's not her place. She she can't tell what happened with May. I mean, that's Joel to tell his parents, you know, even if they were still married, I would say it's Joel's information to tell his parents. Now, I know that all sounds very crazy because what telling this woman? I know, I know. But any news, I feel like the kid whatever in the relationship needs to go tell their own parents. I don't want you telling my parents stuff. I'm not going to go tell your parents stuff about you. That's not appropriate. But then the fact goes step further and say, they're divorced. Oh, my Lord. You know, like it's Mm. especially no place. And then getting into all this. I mean, this is sensitive stuff. I mean, all of this that they're talking about losing the baby and everything. Well, especially given how Joel decides that he wants his mom to know about that outcome is not aligned with the truth. But it's the truth he wants her to know. I think it's probably the truth Shirley can handle. Most especially Shirley. I don't know about Moish. Maybe he'd be a little more open-minded, but I don't think Shirley could handle anything. And I was really touched, actually, by the scene when she brings the little booties to Mm. Moish. And she's just standing in the doorway and she just says his name. It's just dripping with so many emotions. And the way that he doesn't have to say anything. He just pulls the covers back, you know, and like they can console each other, you know. Butt to butt. Butt to butt. Butt's touching. (laughs) I mean, it, that was a very sweet moment that really felt right for them. I hope, do you think that that means that there's any closure? They're reconciled at this point, as far as I know. Oh, that's how you feel? You feel yeah. that reconciled it? Yeah, someone's going to change their heart here. So either going to accept or they're going to compromise or whatever, but... Yeah, they are reconciled in my book. We do have to give like some props to them bringing together this table of (laughs) 
of men who are going to use maps and all these tactical strategies to try to get May out of China. I mean, but that also made my heart so full. The idea that like they would do that for their son's fiance. This is how all in they are. They would get a council together to get her out of China. I mean, isn't that kind of cool that it's like, wow, you guys. The lack of boundaries goes both ways, I suppose. It certainly does for good and for bad, right? They would go all the way to China for you and get you out. That's pretty wow. So a lot of heart, I think, in the Maisel home that evening. So let's move over to Midge because she is our number one. We've got to talk about this. When I saw the summary and it said, Midge makes a mistake at work. <laughs> right. My heart was like, Midge. Yeah. This, the, on IMDb, all, the one-liner is, Midge's mouth gets her in trouble at work. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It all right. Does. So let's just bang this out. She finally gets a joke on TV. Freaking amazing. Gordon fumbles it. Fumbles it, Paul. Totally fumbles it. Oh my God, you guys. Again, we talked about this last episode that she didn't know her way around a live television set and what was going to happen and how loud it would be and how they everything say this would was get a, picked This was a up. month later? Yeah, she had been there four weeks. She had finally gotten a joke up on the joke board there. She got a tally mark. But holy smokes, that was rough. She has pride in her work. This is her first joke. Think about that. If they've done 20 and ones for a month yeah so she has generated 400 jokes minimum yeah and none have gotten used yet that's pretty heinous i i would be pretty pretty bummed yeah and then finally you get one on there and he flubs it totally and then has the goal to tell you basically that he saved your joke that he flubbed it on purpose to make it funny and it wasn't going to be funny so his argument is that there's no wrong laugh. Now, do you believe that's true? No, I don't. I don't either. Do you? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I mean, are you kidding me? Especially when it comes to stand-up. If I fall and hit my face on the ground and you start to laugh, that's a wrong laugh. I don't know about that, but if you were, <laughs> say, you were going up to tell a joke on stage and you fell and I laughed at you falling, that's the wrong laugh. Unless the fall was the joke. Then yeah, I agree. This is the that's the wrong laugh. She's yeah. right. There is a wrong laugh. Right. And anything where you're just like basically salvaging a situation and he people, just dug in and, yeah. d- and decided to go with it. And that's that was right or wrong. Bad. He's gonna go with there's no wrong joke. That's bad. Sorry, so Gordo. The entire bar blow up actually makes the newspaper, Paul. My brain is blown by this idea. I guess we know about like celebrity, like rag magazines and and stuff like that. And certainly during this time, we've learned plenty from watching different TV shows that were that happened during this time. The paparazzi were in full force. You know, stuff was going on. Gordon is a celebrity. So I guess we should think like, yeah, I guess people would follow him around and write what he was up to that night, where he ate and what he was doing and whatever, like spotlights on celebrities and nightlife and stuff like that. So I guess we it's to be expected. This would all be on there, right? But man, this episode with this particular, with Gordon Ford show, had so many weird things that happened. So we got the bar blow up that makes the newspaper. Then they then the show's number one, and she's expecting to be fired. Did you think she'd totally be fired? Yes. Were you shocked she wasn't? Yes. 
it only made sense given the atmosphere, given her treatment, that we didn't get any other further progress on whether or not Gordon or Mike had any romantic intentions toward her until you know later in this episode mm-hmm. um what's the batting average of hitting one out of 400 pitches it's not good right <laughs> right so you're not contributing to the team here you might we were we were fine without you well turns out gordon's actually pretty into her so. pretty into her yeah so and he's not that kind of married that kind of married <laughs> So I am very curious. Now we about what kind of married he is. Well, we've watched Mad Men, so we know there's different types of being married. Sal was also not that kind of married. So you think Sal's wife knew that? I don't know. And that's the thing. Like, I'm not sure. And is Gordon gay? And so this is so the wife's a beard? No, that doesn't make sense. So then you flip it? And are we trying to say that Gordon is somehow a beard for his wife? Because I'm my eyebrow went like, like, what are we talking about? We've seen a picture of his wife and she's she in this world. We just may not know that she's famous in her own right yet. That's true. That's true. So, I mean, Susie definitely gave her like a double take, you know, when, yes. when Susie's there's some story there awkwardly going through the desk drawers. Susie Marie, why she got to cause problems like that? Well, you know, I know that we're not talking about this right now, but when she started to rearrange the talent board, I wonder, you know, in the last episode, we were wondering how Midge is going to wind up on TV at some point. Yes, yes, yes. And we saw that she pulled Sophie Lennon and just tossed it on the floor. I wonder if she's going to create a booking snafu on the on the board here oh i like that very much because then maybe you know maybe the cleaning crew comes through vacuums pushes that sophie lennon under the table or something yeah who knows i mean it's not like my car seems with it enough that if he glanced up at the board and a tile was missing missing, he was he would and he would know what was missing he's i mean he's with it but i like what you're saying that somehow by rearranging the board that was creating some amount of chaos potential at least right Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know what this not that kind of married exactly means. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know what's going on with the wife, but there definitely is something going on with the wife. And I don't know if Susie knows who she is or what, but mm, something's up. So I was shocked for two things with Susie in this one. Okay. One, she actually manages to make a lunch date with Mike, a real honest lunch date with Mike. That seemed unbelievable coming off last episode. So, wow. My second one is Susie can skate. Yeah, that's unexpected. (laughs) She she could not swim. But then when she does that, like, beautiful ballet move, I like to think my only picture in my brain was Kermit the Frog doing, like, a (laughs) one-leg... Like, an arabesque across the all of Rockefeller Center. I was like, oh, my God, this is so funny. They always keep me guessing, right? She can't swim at all, but here she is skating like a well, pro. She, she grew up in the in New England, right? So That's true. That's true. But but even stuff like I can't <laughs> believe she's ever skated at Rockefeller Center. I don't believe they did, but and also, you know, we always laugh about this because I just don't think adults are this fun and carefree anymore. Remember we talked a lot when they were in the Catskills. And they were like hula hooping and yeah. playing Simon Says. And I was like, I don't think you could pay a group of adults or get them drunk enough 
to want to do these types of games anymore. Mm -mm. You know, no, here's the deal. Do I think that group of adults would have a lot of fun if they just stopped being embarrassed and quit like having a big ego and just enjoyed themselves? I think they would really have a fun time. But that just doesn't happen anymore. So to see this group of coworkers go and just be like, they were just like middle schoolers, like all over that ice rink being silly, laughing, horsing around. It, I'm very envious of the carefree nature of adults back during this time. They really knew actually still how to like have some like simplistic fun. It reminded me of Mad Men episodes. I was particularly thinking of the one where they're riding around the John Deere lawnmower oh my God, and yes. they mow off somebody's toes. Yes. And um, just that kind of carefree, we have no idea what the consequences are, nor do we care kind of attitude that they had. That pretty much covers everything that happened in this episode. I mean, it was a lot that happened, to be honest. I mean, really quite a bit. I mean, I'm appreciating the pace of the season. I really want them to just keep going and keep making things happening. It seems like we're good with the matchmaker situation now. So Rose has got to have to have a new project. Abe is going to have to be doing something new here. So I'm curious about how this is all going to be playing out for the two of them. Midge has got to, I think that this talent thing is going to come sooner than later, what you're talking about, the talent board. I think it could be this next episode where something could happen because we st we only have four more after that. We've got to get to where she's going to have some sort of break, you know, in order they got to wrap it up on the back half of this. So there's still quite a lot to go, I think. And from what I understand, the little bits of interviews we've seen, one of the things I've heard, and this is this is just, this is not a spoiler thing, but this is just, I mean, it's out there, that the ending is going to have sort of like a choose your own adventure, like more than one option. Like maybe this is what happened. Maybe this is what happened. Hmm. I don't know how I feel about that exactly, but I guess there's going to be some amount of you decide where she went and how you feel about it at the end of the day. Really something to noodle on, Paulo. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Please leave us five stars to help people find the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.